20 years ago, Sid Butler started French Kiss Records out of his bedroom to put out music by his own band, Les Savi Favre. Since then, he's worked with numerous excellent artists and built an empire of great music on an art rock foundation. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about French Kiss Records on their 20th anniversary. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Sid Butler. Sid, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So, you know, 20 years, cool, all good. (laughs) Let's go back to the very beginning. You're like some people who started a record label to put out their own band. Is that sort of it in a nutshell? That's it in a nutshell. Les Savifov had sent out their demos to dozens and dozens of cool hip labels and got zero response. And then I called Corey Rusk from Touch and Go and said, how do you do this? And I called Ian Mackay from Discord and said, how do you do this? And they were extremely helpful and giving me advice on what to do and what not to do. And of course, they were like, you'll make your own mistakes that we can't tell you about. But these are the mistakes that we made along the way. And I suggest you not make those. <laughs> And Ian's advice was really clear. It was try to keep it as simple as as possible. And Corey's was make sure you have a really good bookkeeper. Wow. Yeah. That was it. That's perfect. I I worked with Corey for years because Touch and Go distributed Kill Rockstars. So I know he's uh, real serious about the pennies. So I'm not surprised that that was his advice. Yes. He was like, learn Excel and get a good bookkeeper. Now, in 1999, I was playing in a New York City punk band, and so I remember Les Savifov really well from the scene. Right. And you guys were kind of like, you guys were really something that was happening in that era that is, I feel like, not really happening right now, which was, you were kind of an art rock band. We were super art rock, for sure. Post-punk art rock. We were the kind of pretentious art kids that were like, we don't want to be in a box. We don't want to be defined by our definition. And of course, by doing that, we were defined by our definition. <laughs> right. But of course, you know, we weren't trying to be famous and big. And of course, every time things started to go well, we would shoot ourselves in the foot and do something stupid. That was us. It was fun. Well, but you did some smart stuff too. I mean, you know, I had an interview for this episode with Craig Finn of The Hold Steady and It was really interesting to hear him talk about how he actually chose to work with you guys because you had sort of the art rock reputation and he felt like that was going to benefit his band because his band really wasn't an art rock band. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, that's the first time I've heard of that. Craig Finn amazes me every time. It surprises me. One of my favorite things about Craig Finn is he got his Series 7 license to be like a (laughs) stockbroker. And... I was just fascinated by that. <laughs> you know, he's a really smart, really smart guy. Of course, one of the best lyricists I know. Yeah. 
but yeah, we just sort of bonded over burritos and, and good music. Yeah. And a handshake. So were you, I just, I, this is my, you know, New York City band thing coming out. Where did you guys practice? When we moved to New York, we, we went to Rhode Island School Design and started the band there and kind of did it as an afterthought. Then we all moved to New York afterwards in 1996. And Tim and Gibb, who was the original guitarist, and Pat Mahoney, who became the drummer of LC Sound System, all lived in this sort of old Knights of Columbus Hall in Williamsburg. And that was when Williamsburg was not the Williamsburg that it is today. And we converted that into our practice space. So we would practice there and those guys live there 24 hours a day. Got it. Yes, that makes sense. Because, you know, people think nowadays that this is crazy, but, you know, my band still practiced on the Lower East Side. And for the most part, you know, the music scene was still in downtown New York. It was still Brownies and Mercury Lounge and Coney Island High and places like that. And Williamsburg sort of happened later. For sure. So you guys were art rockers and trailblazers. <laughs> yes, it was a total definition of, of people being like, I can't afford that rent, so I'm going to go to the one stop away. Yep. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we kept getting off that stop and realizing that we all the kids we knew in college were all that stop. Yeah. I remember when the Bedford Avenue station, there was only stuff that you would go to within like a two block radius. For sure. And any farther than that. And everyone was like, I would never go there. That's too scary. Yeah. I remember when <laughs> Enid started and you had to walk across the park, McCarran Park, and you're like, uh, oh. My God. Yeah. No way. No way. Yeah. I take a car service there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. And car services because there was no Uber and there were no taxis out there. Yeah. You had a car service. Yeah. It was crazy. Sort of the good old days. All right. So let's talk about how you got into, and we had, so here you are, you're in a band, you're putting out your records, but then you obviously started putting out other people's records and you started functioning like a real label. So what was that process like for you? Initially, it was really simple. And I thought, this is really easy. I'm surprised that, you know, all the horror stories that I had heard about running your own record label. Basically, we'd find a band like Craig Finn's former band with Polar and be like, hey, you want to put your record out? And he said, yes. <laughs> And the expectations were really small. It'd be like, if you could sell 500, it would be amazing. Mm -hmm. So you'd press 500 and then the band would go on tour and they'd buy them from you and then you'd sell them and you'd sort of putter along. And keeping about the Hold Steady, it wasn't until the Hold Steady became the Hold Steady. They put out, almost killed me and it sort of puttered along throughout the year. And then it made all the top 10 like year best of records. Mm. And then shortly after, they were on the cover of The Village Voice. And that is when I realized how hard it was to run a record label. <laughs> right. Because within seconds, you had minor or small distribution. All of a sudden, people wanted the record. I couldn't keep up. I couldn't manufacture them as fast as they were needed to be manufactured. And on top of that, I, we had Separation Sunday, which was the band's follow-up record, immediately afterwards. Oh, my God. And then they were on the cover of The Village Voice. And I just got slammed financially. And then when we had your publicist and the publicist was like, I need a hundred people on the guest list. And I was like, I can't afford that. <laughs> oh and she God. was like, you better and hung up. So, Oh my God. That's, that's awesome. when I scrambled and, you know, borrowed, robbed and stole to find the money to sort of help that. But I was just like hit over the head by a sledgehammer. And so who did you have distro with first off? And then who did you move to? We had Corey touching go as our first distributor. Oh, that's great. But he did a consignment deal with us which was super easy. And then all of a sudden we left and went to Southern. Oh, yeah. Southern. And then Southern helped us a little bit, but we parlayed Lissabifov into touring Europe for Southern and our distro rate was terrible. Oh, my God. 
And then they did such a terrible job with our other bands that we left and went to Caroline. And then Caroline dropped the ball with the whole steady situation. And then I left and went to Red and then ended up at the Orchard full time. Got it. That short paragraph there that you just described is is like basically every person who's ever run a record label could give that exact resume. You know, distribution, at least in the physical age, used to be such a major stumbling block for a label's success. And now things I feel like are a little bit different, although, you know, there are several distributors that are just digital, but it really depends on the style of music because, I mean, I'm sure you hear every day, just like I do, like, oh, physical is dead. There's no point in getting worried about physical. And that's just not true. Not true. Not true at all. Yeah. Every year our vinyl sales improve like 10 or 15%. And the demand for vinyl, especially packaged vinyl or special options in the vinyl, just keeps going up. Yeah. And, you know, the kids today want vinyl. My daughter's obsessed with vinyl. There's a cool record store in our neighborhood and she goes and like knows the people's names. And it reminds me of when we were young, we'd go to Smash or the hipster record place in the Northwest and just be like, what should I listen to? What just came in? And it's become like a cool talking point. A good friend of mine just bought my daughter for her 13th birthday, Abbey Road on vinyl. Wow. And she was like ecstatic. <laughs> And all of her 13 year old friends, they listen to Spotify and they listen to vinyl and like they collect the vinyl. They, they, it's kind of like what we used to do. It, it's come back, which is so exciting. Yeah, no, it's really terrific. And in, and from a label perspective, I mean, I don't know about you, but I love, I have loved making all the cool vinyl that they have today and all the swirl and splatter and all the stuff that they can do nowadays is so cool. I agree. It's, it's amazing.
That was Twitch by Miss June. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Sid Butler. So what would you say, like, what's your favorite part about running a record label now in 2019? The moment still excites me when you see a band become a band. I know that's sort of a general statement, but there's always a moment when a band sort of goes to band practice and they play shows. But there's always a moment when like someone in the band f***s up live <laughs> and someone shoots an eye glance at someone else. And then it's that moment when they either become a band or they break up. Right. It, it's always that excitement of like the best show that they, you know, they've been playing their first hits and all of a sudden they find a new way of playing one of their other songs and then that becomes the new hit. It, it's sort of that mushy part, that vague time when they become a band. It still just excites me and gets me going. And, and when that's captured on record, even better. Yeah. No, that's really, that's totally true. And then, of course, you're one of the few of us who is still playing in a band after all these years. I know. It's a cruel mistress. I can't escape it. It drives me nuts. <laughs> With mostly the same guys, right? From the original Les Savifov? Yeah. So, yeah, Seth Dubois, I see four times a week on Seth Meyers. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, I see Tim, you know, we have lunch and hang out every once in a while and, you know, resurrect the Les Savifov machine and, you know, try to get our yayas out by screaming and playing loud music to people in their 40s. Yeah, which those of us in our 40s love to hear it. Although we had also like to hear it while sitting down some of the time. <laughs> exactly. I've, I've definitely <laughs> noticed I'm definitely in the back by the soundboard, you know, leaning up against the wall. Yeah, it's definitely different. It's funny. People ask me all the time. They're like, oh, don't you miss playing in a band? And I'm like, you know, I had a really crazy singer in my band. I'm still really great friends with my bass player, but our singer was really bananas. And it was like, being in that band was like being in a very dysfunctional relationship. And I'm like, right. so yeah, I really don't miss that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't say I miss it. Yeah, no, it's very funny. I love Tim, who's crazy as well. And I can have lunch with him and a beer with him and we get along great. But there's something about the dynamic on stage that I'm just like, stay away from the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, people, if you haven't been in a band, you don't understand that. Yes, the band dynamic. It's weird. It's very strange. So yeah, you mentioned the HG band. So that's a cool gig. You're playing in that band with my friend Marnie Stern, who's on my label. Love Marnie. Yeah. Yes. Marnie's the best. Great guitar player. Great unsung guitar hero, I think, in America. She really is. And every once in a while, she sort of lights up the glee when some huge, famous band comes on SNL and finds out that Marnie's in the HG band. And like, we'll come and be like, hi, oh my God, I'm the biggest band. <laughs> And she's like, but you're in Maroon 5. Like, why are you talking to me? And he's like, oh my God, you're the best. That's awesome. So it's, it's, it's a nice nod to her. But yeah, Marnie, I love Marnie to death. She's one of my favorite people on the planet. Yeah, she is amazing. And that's a cool kind of a day job for you guys. It really is. I can't believe it that you know, Fred Armisen put us together and you walked into a room and saw my other bandmate, Seth and Marnie and Eli Janney, who I've known from D.C. since I was 14. And we just get to make up punk songs every day. It's, it's just really a blessed job. Yeah, that's a pretty good deal. So what have you guys got on the docket for the rest of 2019 and 2020 for French Kiss? It's a great question. And we just signed this woman named Julie O'Dell from New Orleans. She's sort of a singer-songwriter, a little bit of a departure, more so the Eleanor Friedberger vein, but just a beautiful record. And so we're really excited about that, but she's a brand new artist. And then we have Fabrizio Moretti's solo record. Mm. And that will come out in the spring of 2020. And it's a beautiful record. 
very intimate and personal and, and I'm very excited about that one. Cool. That sounds awesome. I want to ask you this because I always like to ask other label owners what they're thinking. Do you feel like it's gotten harder in the current environment to put out young artists like brand new bands? It's almost impossible. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> I completely agree. And I wish yeah. it wasn't so. If you don't have millions of dollars that you just don't care about. Right. It's so difficult and no one cares. And I feel bad. It doesn't matter what you sing about. That's a story. And I think, unfortunately, most young bands or breaking bands don't have a story. So that they're hard to write about. I can't be like, yeah, they're really good. <laughs> they're really like it. She's from New Orleans. She's a single mother. She. So I find that myself telling someone more about them or the history or the story behind the music rather than say trust the music or just have your own experience listening to this music. It's very, very difficult. And I feel really badly because some people send me these great songs as demos or, hey, we really like your label. I'm like, hey, this is really good, but do you have a booking agent? Do you, have you toured? You know, and I know, but I had a lot of big dreams and I'm like, I need more than big dreams. Yeah really really hard it's very disappointing because there's so many bands you're like oh you're so good but i don't know how to do this with you but only let you down i agree completely you know this program is is directed a lot towards young artists and i feel like that's the, the sort of hard truth that they have to hear is that you know it's it's not like it was 20 years ago you can't just be good there has to be more going on because it's too difficult i mean you know it's not the same financial situation it's not the same you know, the investment doesn't pay off in the same way that it did 20 years ago. And so for an indie label, which is really, I mean, we're the risk takers of the music industry. You know, we're the ones who put up the dollars for the young bands who are unproven. You know, for us to put money in, there's no necessary, like literally no gain. You know, there's the potential to actually make nothing. So, you know, it's a that's a hard equation. It's a super hard equation. And then you come back and say, I really want to put this record up, but can I give you $2,000 or $5,000? And then the manager who's their friend laughs, you know, and I'm like, yeah, it's funny. I agree with you. Yeah. But there's no way you haven't proven yourself to anyone. You haven't played any shows. You haven't sold out, you know, sell out a room and build your scene again, build your momentum. I'm also fascinated by what young bands think is their best song. Right. If anyone ever sends me a demo, I just say, send me two songs, your best song, and the songs that your friends think is your best song, because usually that's the better song. Oh, that's interesting. I love that. That's great. Yeah, steal it, take it away. And the other thing I love to young friends, don't send a label your full record and expect them to respond to you in a week and give you notes. <laughs> There's only so many hours in a day. We're pummeled with music. It takes me personally weeks to get back to people. If they really want me to listen to it. And I don't listen to the whole record. Right. I just don't have time. If I get a realistically 20 demos or 20 pieces of music a week, that's a lot that I have to sit down and email and say, this is a good song or this is a bad song. And most people don't really want my opinion. They want me to go, this is amazing. Here's a million dollars. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I recently changed jobs in September, so I don't run Kill Rock Stars anymore. My husband is back to running it after, you know, 13 years away from music. But... You know, the thing that I, I took to saying in my last few years running the label was, you know, when you come to me and you say, what do you think of my music? You have to understand that what you're actually saying to me is give me $45,000 in a year of your life. Right. Like, that's actually what you're saying. It's You're not saying, what do you think of my music? Because if I go, hey, it sounds pretty good. 
you don't want to hear that. <laughs> that's not yeah. That's not what you're asking for. So it's like people don't understand what they're actually asking us to do. Yes, I agree. So that's another part that's hard yeah. about being a record label these days. But but we're glad that you're still doing it. French Kiss is amazing. Still the home of many amazing bands. And we're so glad that you're still with us and holding steady. Oh my God, I brought that around. <laughs> it's good. I bring, bring it back. Yes, no, I, can't, I can't believe it. I keep like, uh, there's just too much talent out there and I try to figure out ways to make it be released. Yeah, awesome. Well, Sid Butler, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What? Portia, it's my pleasure and thank you so much for thinking of me.
was You and I by Local Natives. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Craig Finn of The Hold Steady. Craig, welcome to The Future of What? Hey, thanks for having me. So this is a music business podcast, in case you're not familiar with us, and we talk a lot about indie labels, other labels, what's going on in the industry, sort of everything. And every now and then we do a spotlight on a label, and this spotlight is obviously on French Kiss Records. I'm interested to know, I mean, you guys have had a long history with French Kiss. They're celebrating their 20th anniversary this year, and you did your first two records on French Kiss and then went away for a couple of albums and then came back and did another one. Yeah. So how did you get hooked up with French Kiss in the first place back in the early 2000s? Actually, it was with my old band, Lifter Puller, and we were a band in Minneapolis, and we were putting out a record on another label called Self Starter Foundation, which was our friend Chris Neumeyer had that label. And Sid had just started French Kiss, and I think that Sid was probably looking for a partner in some way, maybe to defer some of the costs. And Sid was starting this label to put out Le Savi Fa, but also wanted to put out other bands. And I think Chris played Sid the music, and Sid wanted to be a part of it. So that was Lifter Puller release. The album was called Fiestas and Fiascos. It was a joint release between Self Starter Foundation and French Kiss. So after that, Lifter Puller went on tour with Le Savi Fa, which was Sid's band, and sort of the, really the, cornerstone of French Kiss, especially at the time, was Les Savifav. So we toured with them a little bit in the early 2000. And then our band, Lifter Puller, broke up, and I personally moved to New York City and started to hold steady a few years later. And we were looking to put out our first record. And in the meantime, Sid had become a friend and continued to be a friend that I hung out with when I was in New York. So it was kind of an obvious choice for the first Hold Steady record. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny. We have all these weird overlaps because I lived in Minneapolis in the early 90s and played in a couple bands there. Oh, wow. And then the band that I was in in New York went on to become Palomar, which is also on Self Starter oh, yeah. Foundation. So you probably know those. Yeah, sure. And and it goes deeper than that because the reason I knew Chris Neumeyer was the Self Starter Foundation, and he was also my boss at a company called Digital Club Network. And my coworker was a guy named Matt Hauser, who was the drummer of Palomar. Um, and so we would hang out and sometimes we would all go out, including Sid from French Kiss and eat pizza at lunch. Yeah. So when the whole study came out, we actually had a couple people who wanted to put out our first record. But I remember thinking like that the whole study sort of had this kind of classic rock sound and it was kind of maybe a little more traditional rock and roll than a lot of the indie stuff that was happening at the time. And I thought that by putting it out, our first record on French Kiss, which was kind of known for these artsy punk records, that it might frame it differently to people. Like people might experience it, I don't know, maybe take it more seriously or something as it stood alongside things that didn't exactly sound like. And I think in the end, that was probably a good move for, I mean, there's a lot of good things about French Kiss, but I think that that was one of the things I think people listen to it maybe a little differently than they would have otherwise. I think that was really clever, Craig, because you're totally right. I think that because they had that sort of art rock feel as a label, you guys got taken way more seriously. It's, it's almost like, oh, wait, this is poetry. This isn't just rock, right? Like, we have to actually listen to these lyrics. That's so true. I hadn't thought about that yeah. at all. Yeah, and I think, that, uh, I think that that framing was really important, especially on the first record. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really think it came out that way. And yeah, it was considered artsy in its own way, even if the sort of tones and riffs were kind of more familiar and, and more classic than some of the other releases on the label. Which is funny because I wonder if then the Hold Steady sort of pulled French Kiss away from art rock and into indie rock. It's hard to know. I, I, I certainly felt, especially when the Hold Steady put out a second record, Separation Sunday, that like, you know, all of a sudden things were happening. We were in late night TV and things like that. We we're kind of doing some firsts for French Kiss, which I don't think what either us or maybe even Sid expected, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think... Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, it was always kind of like the, the Les Savi Five was going to be the biggest band on French Kiss. And all of a sudden, you know, these things kind of were happening in kind of almost a more mainstream thing where being on late night TV or in all these magazines, you know, people were really reacting to the record and it was really selling. So there was this kind of growth spurt that I think we may have brought to the table on that second record. The other thing I was just thinking kind of in, in preparation for this talk that I was thinking that in regards to French Kiss of that era is that it had something going for it that a lot of labels didn't. And that was, especially living in New York, French Kiss had a van. <laughs> and they would let us use it to tour. Yep. And yep. and that's, I mean, it, it's it's hard to overstate how important that is. <laughs> it's, it's huge. <laughs> we could take that van and, and that we didn't, you know, park or pay insurance on or anything like that. You know, maybe, maybe we could pay the rental fee for the tour or something like that. But it was very minimal. The idea was Sid knew that if we were out there touring, it was good for his label and good for, you know, sales and whatnot. And it was, it was, I mean, it probably wouldn't have happened the same way if we didn't have that. We would have had to rent a van from a commercial place or buy one. And, and that, that was huge at that time. So for us to be able to take a van and go for a few weeks at a time, that was, that was amazing. I think you're right. I think there's so many bands whose trajectories have completely been changed just by the access to a van. Like I think that's yeah. like in the history of yeah. indie rock, it's it's true. I remember the label that I ran for the last 13 years is called Kill Rock Stars. And sure. uh, my husband, when he started it many years ago, he had a bunch of bands come through and he always had a van for them to use. And until one time when he was driving the band Slumber Party to the airport and they got pulled over by the cops who found out he was driving the van without insurance and impounded the van and left the band and all their equipment on the side of the highway. <laughs> oh, my God. So. Oh, my God. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a nightmare. But, yeah, I mean, those are those were huge things that, you know, I mean, there were little things that, that labels could do, especially back then, I think, maybe now, but especially that made a huge difference and made it very attractive. Yeah. And, you know, especially being in New York, you know, like it was like, like if we were, if we were still in Minneapolis, we would have had our own van. We would have needed it just to get to, you know, the local gigs. But but we didn't. And it allowed us to, to exist that way. And that was, you know, huge for us. And I think also, you know, I, I played in New York bands for 10 years. And there's a weird contradiction in New York because part of being in New York is that you sort of feel like, well, if we just play that one great show at Brownies. Like our future is set, but the truth is yeah. that, you know, actually you really don't do that well in New York until you get out of New York. Like that's a huge part yeah. of it. That's true. I think that's true. I mean, New York was, yeah, I mean, there is that strange thing of like, you know, your local press is national press. Right. But, you know, you kind of have to go be a national band first, <laughs> you know? Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Just got to get out of there. Yeah.
That was Sweat Descends by Les Fav. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. Also check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Craig Finn of The Hold Steady. So... One thing that's really interesting about your band, The Hold Study, that I don't know that a lot of people know, because you guys had quite a, a high degree of success, like you were a pretty visible band, yeah. is that, to my knowledge, you've never been on a major label. No. We went to Vagrant after French Kiss, and right. you know that was like, I mean, you know, it had some sort of relationship with Universal, but not in a way that affected us, you know? Um, I, it it very it felt like an indie felt like you know kind of a bigger indie, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah no we never we never did the major label thing, and you know when we started the home study I was already in my thirties we mostly all were, mm-hmm. and I remember when when Separation Sunday blew up and having a couple of meetings with major labels and 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 in particular I'm, I had one with a guy I liked a lot and I sort of said. No, I don't really see this as this is the right place. You know, I don't see us at 30 something years old slotting right into a major label thing. It seems, from what I can tell, kind of rigid and, you know, you guys do things a certain way. And I'm not sure that that's where we're best served. And, and I think we're right. You know, I mean, I think that, that we ended up with a vagrant who was, who was very good to us while we were there. It, it, it seemed like the right move, but no, we never, we never did the major label thing. So what brought you back to French Kiss for this latest record? Well, we were kind of looking to do something kind of easy at first. You know, it wasn't so much we were planning to do an album at first. We were 
looking to put a couple songs out. I think it was, when was that, like late 2017 or something? It was, we, we wanted to drop kind of a surprise digital single before these shows we were playing. You know, we'd kind of taken some time and we'd come back and we had a new lineup of the band, which we were really happy with. We went and recorded some music and we're like, what if we just put out two new songs? Like, you know, right before these shows, that would kind of blow people's mind because we hadn't had a new release in a long time. And French Kiss, you know, they had reissued the first two records and we'd worked with them on the reissues and they were very responsive and easy to work with. And, you know, Paul at the, at the label was super good at getting back to, to, and was super excited. So it felt like there was this momentum from working on those reissue projects that when we wanted to put out new music, so like, you know, can you help us do that? And they said, yeah, that's easy. We can do that. And, you know, they kind of got us, you know, digitally and hit all our deadlines and all that. And then we were able to do it successfully. And we, so we kept doing a couple of those digitally with the idea that we'd figure out a way to do something physical, you know, before too long. And that's basically what happened. Eventually we, we were kind of putting out two songs at a time. And then we went up and recorded five songs at the beginning of 20, when was it? 2019, January, 2019. We recorded five songs upstate and we said, this actually seems like the first side of an album. So we kind of thought, let's put this on the first side of an album. Let's put some of these songs we've been releasing digitally on the second side and call it an LP. And, you know, French Kiss was willing and able and anxious to release it with us and, so it was kind of an organic return to them. Awesome. I just have one more question for you. You know, things change in the music industry all the time, but there's been this sort of narrative for the last several years where people are saying, oh, artists don't even need a label anymore. You can do it all yourself. And I just wanted to just throw that at you and see what your response is. You know, I think that a label is, is going to be helpful. You know, and for one, you know, some things we've talked about framing a good label with a good reputation or, or a reputation can you know, help you frame your music or have it help it stand out. You know, certainly if you're here of a band and they're on sub pop, you might be more willing to check them out than, than if you, they just were putting out their own record. You might there's a stamp of approval or a stamp of quality that comes with that, you know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, there's expertise that you would hope the label would bring and, and does, you know, in a good sense. I think it becomes harder at a lower level, you know, just, I mean, understanding what a label has to invest and what the returns are in the streaming era. I get a lot of people I'm like, oh, you got to help me. I, I'm trying to find a label for my record. And it's like, well, you know, maybe just try, <laughs> try it yourself first and, mm-hmm. and build up to getting a label because there, there has to be a partnership there. There has to be something offered at both sides. And I think that now more than ever, because, you know, some, some amount of money has been taken out of the equation. And so it's not as easy for both sides, but I do think that if you are working with a label that that gets you and works with you, then that's a very good thing and a a lucky thing for an artist to have. Yeah. And sometimes they have a van. Yeah. And if they have a van, all the better. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Craig Finn, it's been delightful talking to you. Thanks so much for being with me today on The Future of What. Thanks so much. Take care. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Miss June, Local Natives, Le Savi Favre, and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. 
Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. See you next week.